I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. I met Tamar Zagorski at an art fair. Honestly, that's where I met a lot of the people that I know from the international art world. We met in the booth of Summer Contemporary Art. She worked with Erit Mayer Summer, and I had shown the work of one of the gallery artists, Yehuda Sesportis, and that's how we got connected. We stayed in touch over time, and I was captivated recently to learn that she had left that longtime position, she'd been there two decades, to start a new business, and a business that was focused on a really interesting approach to contemporary ritual and spirituality and the objects that are needed in order to engage. It wasn't easy to think about it in a creative way. It's kind of a, we're inventing something new in this world. We also have in common being moms, and that's another thing we talk about, what it is like to balance having kids and being a woman in business, in art. I was thinking about the last time we saw each other, I think was in Tel Aviv, right? And did we run into each other in a coffee shop? I think we met either at the Armory Show or in Art Basel, Miami. But it was, I think, eight or ten years ago. Oh, no. You mean when we met the first time? The first time. Oh, the last time? When when were you here in Tel Aviv? It was Thanksgiving of 2019. Yeah, the very first time we met, I think, was in Art Basel, Miami. Mm Mm-hmm. Part of what we do on these podcasts, it's almost like um, personal geography. Like, you know, were you in this place at this date? (laughs) It's like playing, (laughs) you know. I love it. You know, it reminds me, you know, in Israel, because it's now it's not that small, you know. But when I grew up, we were four million. And I remember still today, you meet someone and then you always know his brother, his sister, his best friend. It's always like, where were you? Oh yeah, I know him. I know her. I know you. You feel you always know someone somehow <laughs> here. <laughs> I actually like that. I'm in Orange County now and there are 3 million people here. And I certainly don't know other than a, a small amount of them. We live in a neighborhood now where we know our neighbors. Every house is filled. And that's so different than living in Aspen where so many of the homes are second homes or third homes and they're occupied sometimes, but Mm. not all the time. And to live amongst other people, to be part of a community feels really amazing to me. Amazing. I felt every time I went to an art fair, there were times when I worked at the gallery, we went to, I don't know, four, five, six art fairs. And you see the same people all the time from different countries, but you feel like it's a community. 
Yeah, and I grew up in a very small town in the Negev, which is the desert part of Israel. Uh, we were 2,000 families. That's it. Very small place. So I grew up in a really a community, a real community, a little bit bigger than a kibbutz. <laughs> My boyfriend shared this, I don't know if it's a quote or an idea or whatnot. It actually came from a coach of ours and... It's not about the destination, which at this point we know, right? And right. it's not about the journey, which we still think it might be, but instead it's about the company. And, you know, who do you want to cross the universe holding mm-hmm. hands with? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's true. And you are now, there's so many things that we'll talk about. And sometimes I start kind of in the past and move to the present, but I'd actually love to start in the present with you and then we can move backwards. So Mm -hmm. you are now in business with your partner, your life partner. With my life partner in the past 22 years or so. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I worked at Sommer Gallery for almost 20 years. And a year and a half ago, I left the gallery and now I'm managing the studio of Guy. Guy Zagorski, he's an Israeli sculptor. He also worked at the gallery. So it's not that awkward for me to work with him. But again, now it's only him and me. So we are partners and I'm managing his studio. And it's not easy to live with an artist. What a cliche. (laughs) Almost two years ago, Guy, he works with iron and steel and he does large scale sculptures. But he thought of doing a special series of Seder plates, which will be created at the same language as he does his sculptures from wood, from porcelain, from different kinds of materials. And he thought of it as a small sculpture, not only as a Seder plate. This was in 2020, before Pesach 2020. The pandemic was already here. So he made this series of Seder plates and people loved it. And it became something that he and I, I mean, I left the gallery afterwards, but it went really well. People loved it. The reactions were really amazing. And when I left the gallery, I said, okay, I think something is missing. I mean, people are looking for something that is functional, but then contemporary and beautiful. Because when you say Yudaika, I don't know how it is in the States, but here, when you say Yudaika, the connotation is very old, traditional, only silver. Yeah, I'd love to step in for a minute and give a little background or context for at least an American audience. We have a global audience with the podcast. What you're referencing is we say Judaica, and it's the ceremonial objects that are used in Jewish ritual. And a lot of them have utilitarian functions, right? So the Seder plate that you're referencing is used for Passover. So there's a long history and a long tradition. And, and when I went to work at the Jewish Museum in New York, I, um, I grew up in a you know, secular family and just didn't have access to the ceremonial objects. I, I really didn't know what Judaica was. And at the Jewish Museum, there are three curatorial departments, one of which is Judaica. And for me, that was an introduction. And here in in Orange County, I know people that have 
incredible Judaica collections intermixed with collections of contemporary art. And Mm -hmm. what you're talking about is really interesting in terms of a fusion between those seemingly disparate or different ways of thinking about object making and, and art and utility. It's true. And you know, by the way, both Guy and I grew in secular houses totally but we i mean um as a child we were we had the friday dinner with a little kiddush and we we celebrated the holidays passover the jewish new year which is called rosh hashanah hanukkah which i assume is more uh, familiar and you know i thought about it first of all the word sidur sidur is the name of the the brand sidur means in hebrew errands to do an errand or to organize something, both. Tidu was uh, something that we thought about a lot because it's also a secular meaning in Israel. You do a sidu on Friday morning and before the Shabbat enters. And it's a short day in Israel, by the way, uh, Friday. I'm jumping again to the objects of the Yudaika. They are really contemporary, this was very important for Guy, not to be dragged to the traditional scenery and the the viewing of the objects. He wanted them to be and still wants them to look new, to look fresh, to look contemporary, to be similar to his art, not something very different. Although it's functional, it's not not only art. Art, it's not a functional thing. It's only for beauty, no? (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about the idea of tablescaping, mm-hmm. which, you know, now there's a trend towards that as people have spent so much more time at home. And True. there was a, a lot mm-hmm. of talk about that over the over the New Year's and the holidays here, where people were anticipating being with family or with friends, and, and then they still weren't able to be. And so People were still setting the table as if people were coming over. And I had a lot of fun doing that, you know, tablescaping and my kids, you know, enjoyed it also. And the idea of, of setting the table as part of a ritual of celebrating coming together and eating and drinking and talking together, I think is, is really beautiful. And maybe almost it's been a lost art that's coming back to a contemporary practice. And I love mm-hmm. things like that. I love mm-hmm. rituals and a lot of the rituals historically are religious and now they're secular. And I was taken by what you guys are doing in, in terms of being able to do the both. Anyone who listens to the podcast or listens to me knows that I'm interested in the both and the things that can be seemingly disparate, but at the same time. So art and function, yeah, ritual mm-hmm. and secular. Mm -hmm. And being life partners and business partners, things that seem like maybe you couldn't do before, but you can, because we can do whatever we want. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, a guy, he works at the studio from morning to afternoon. Sometimes I surprise him and I'm checking time schedule. Pesach, Passover is is just around the corner. (laughs) Because it's a functional thing, you know, there are deadlines. It's a different story than working on his art. Like even if there's an exhibition in a year and a half from now, he has time. And here, also the holidays and the Shabbat and the whole year is, uh, is all scheduled. It's a little bit different to work in that way. The, the objects themselves, he feels it's part of his art. 
totally. You talked about some of the materials that he works with, the iron and the wood, and and utilizing those same materials in the sculpture as now in the Judaica. Describe what they look like. Maybe describe for our listeners what a traditional Seder plate looks like, and then what Guy's Seder plate looks like. Okay, so what I saw, from yes. what I know, <laughs> a Seder plate is like a big plate. It's a round, big plate that you put in the center of the table, and you have six small bowls, and each bowl, you put different kind of food in it, and each food symbolizes something from the Passover, the Haggadah, the Passover book. Correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one's going to um, be But usually... Yes. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> and guys said a plate. First of all, it's the material is different. It's made out of wood and covered with epoxy, so it won't get wet if if you want to wash it. And there are on the wooden part there are six white porcelain bowls with gold on it. He just drew with real gold, an abstract figures. It's, it's not figurative, just an abstract. Like a small Pollock, mm. golden Pollock, mm. and, the, and the small porcelain uh, bowls. And in the middle, there is a crystal bowl. And the crystal bowl reflects everyone who's sitting around the table. So you can see everyone in the center of the bowl, of the Seder plate. The combination of the materials, this is contemporary. You know what I mean? This mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. it's not traditional. It's not silver. It's not only, I don't know, only wood. Probably the the ancient ones were made of wood. Wood and porcelain and epoxy and gold and the crystal ball. Yeah, and physically it looks uh, massive. It's really like a small sculptor, but you can use it. If people are sitting for the Passover Seder, the ritual of the meal, you have to have a Seder plate. And so there's a built-in audience, right? For people Mm -hmm. that want something different in order to be able to practice the ritual. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wonder, there's some other things. I mean, everyone knows about a menorah because it's probably the most well-known Jewish holiday. And in Judaica, they're called Hanukkah lamps. Are there plans to move into some of these other Judaica items? Yeah, he created a Hanukkah menorah, which really looks like a sculpture, a modernist sculpture. Also, wood porcelain and gold. I wanted to say something about the porcelain uh, and about Guy. Guy, his practice in his art, in his sculptures, he loves adventures. He tries different materials every year. I mean, he works with everything in his studio and he practices by himself. And the porcelain, he has a kiln for it and he studies the materials so good and he knows that he will use it also for his art, for his sculptures. Not only for Sidu, for the Judaica. It's not a separate thing for him, totally. So he did a Hanukkah menorah. Yeah, it looks really different. On the Hanukkah menorah, you have eight candlesticks and, the, and a shamash. Shamash is the highest one or the one who is different than the other ones. And this is the candlestick and the candle that you light, the other eight candlesticks. Each day you light another candle. And the Hanukkah menorah, the shamash, was separated. He built a Hanukkah menorah with eight spaces for candlesticks, and the shamash was 
in a different place. It looks like a small installation on the table. So you reference the fact that Guy also worked at the gallery. Does that mean that he was represented by Summer Gallery? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about you in the role to talk with people about his work. And that's one of the exciting things about working with artists is explaining their work to other people. And I was thinking about the through line with you working in the gallery and talking to clients about his work, and then now working together collaboratively in this business and telling people about his work and how seamless that is. It was very embarrassing for me to talk about his art at the gallery. I felt embarrassed, you know. I preferred Irit, another colleague of mine, will talk about Guy's works. <laughs> you know, that's I felt very... it's not professional, you know. It, although it's only in my mind, it's only in my head. It's a very honest perspective. There are many art world couples where the gallerist, the dealer has some kind of relationship with the artists or people that work at the gallery or it's not uncommon. And, you know, when you love someone, you're invested in how people relate to them. And there are a variety of different levels of awkwardness that can occur, right? If you're talking with someone about someone's work and you have your own relationship, your own personal relationship, your own personal investment in that person and their work, you know, separate and beyond the, the business relationship of, of representation. So does it feel better to be outside of the gallery circumstance talking about the work? Does it feel more in alignment? Wow, it's a tough question. I'm, I'm thinking about it yeah. all the time. You know, at the beginning, I felt the same. I felt embarrassed to represent my husband, you know, my partner. Yeah. But, you know, a year and a half passed and I feel it, it's more organic to me. It's more natural now I'm, I'm happy about it and I'm, I'm not embarrassed and I'm totally okay and honest about it. It was really a conflict for me. And now it's less. And I must say that the fact that Sidur, the Yudaika brand, I, I'm saying it out loud. I launched it. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> did launch it. It's, it's easier. Yes. It's like another, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's, it's another thing that is mine, but Although Guy creates the stuff, it's, it's more easy for me. But indeed, it was very difficult when I was working at the gallery. It wasn't easy. I got a message from a friend of mine the other day sharing about how he was able to make something happen that had been kind of a long-term dream. And he said, you were the one who told me to say it out loud. You were the one who encouraged me to manifest it. And this wow. isn't someone who believes in stuff like... I do. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I believe in saying it out loud and manifesting. And, you know, this is someone who has a totally different perspective. There's incredible power in saying something out loud. And so for you to even take a moment to kind of hesitate or recenter before then saying, I'm saying this out loud, I launched this, you know, there's an incredible power in that. And, you know, mm -hmm. standing in that place of, authenticity and strength and creativity and innovation. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on the podcast to talk about it today, because I think that life 
it's more for me exciting and alive when it's courageous and I feel mm-hmm. like doing things like this like stepping away from you know long-term comforts and roles and doing something new I think it's sort of like a theme on, on the podcast guess, <laughs> because it's, it's what I'm interested in and I think interestingly this kind of spirit of entrepreneurialism which is I think what we're talking about connects to my long-term interest in artists and people who Mm -hmm. are innovators and creative thinkers. And for me, being able to see that outside of just the art-making role of the artist, but people who are being innovative and entrepreneurial around art is really interesting. Yeah, you know, after leaving the gallery after 20 years, I needed to take a long breath, a big breath, because Guy, I mean, he's an artist. I know how it is, you know, from the other side. I worked with 20 artists and it was really an important step for me as a person and also for us, for both of us. It took, I don't know, courage. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and even doing Sidur, the Yudaika thing, is you also needed courage to touch the essence of Judaism suddenly, but in a different way, you know, in a creative way, in a contemporary point of view. So it's also something I thought about it before I thought it will, it will be like a thing, you know, not just the Passover plate. Before I thought it would be a brand, it wasn't easy to think about it in a creative way. It's kind of a, we're inventing something new in this world called Judaica. I don't know. You saw probably a lot of objects in the Jewish Museum. Yeah, a lot. When I was running a full curatorial program, most recently at the Aspen Art Museum, as I would take our staff really through the exhibitions, the guides and the educators, I would always make associations. I would say, well, this artist worked with this artist or this artist came for the opening of this other artist. And Mm. basically storytelling about objects and people that people had met before or referenced. And, And I'm noticing now in really curating this podcast, some of the things that are coming up again as because I'm I'm the one that chooses the conversations. And so in addition to this idea of you know courageous innovation and stepping away from a long-term role that again is something that other people look to aspire towards. And one of the other things that is coming up on the podcast is a rethinking of contemporary spirituality. And mm-hmm. you know, what does that mean and and how can people stand in the place of bringing their whole selves to work, right? And the whole self is sometimes they're big pieces of yourself um, and sometimes they're small pieces of yourself. And I'm interested in, in that. There's an earlier podcast earlier this year with Tyler Rollins, who has set up now a foundation for spirituality and art, something that he had been interested in for a long time and, and didn't feel like he could do. And this idea of, yeah, you balancing, what does it mean to say we're going to create these religious objects as works of art and the contemporary art contemporary art exactly yeah and Mm -hmm. and how that feels and the Brene Brown book now that's most recently out is about awkwardness stepping into that awkwardness and how fruitful it can be and you know one of the other things I was thinking is 
about being in business with your husband and being a woman in the art world with kids, being a mom, you know, these things. Oh, that- this is, wow. I remember Heidi, when I was, Irit and I, we, Irit, my former boss, the, the, the owner of Summer Contemporary Art, we were talking about it a lot of being a mother and being a businesswoman in the art world. There aren't so many women gallerists, no? that are mothers as well I think you know what uh, it's so interesting because yes it is true and just like I thought for a long time that you know there really weren't other curators who were also moms Mm -hmm. you know what I've realized Mm -hmm. over the years is actually most people did have families but people didn't talk about it they weren't visible they weren't apparent and and for me Like I always brought my kids to the museum. That was Mm -hmm. just a decision that I made that was super counter, you know, and Mm -hmm. I knew both you guys, you know, had kids and you would Mm -hmm. like have conversations with certain people. And so you would know. So I don't know exactly, but yeah, for a long time, it seemed like you couldn't do both. So it's true. I can say before 2008, not for me personally, because something changed. But uh, you know, the pandemic, the COVID, I think you spoke about it before, about being at home to be with your kids, but still try to work online when you were in quarantine. I think it changed, I think, in the past two to five years, the approach of to think of being a gallerist woman with kids. I think it became more soft. It's not that rare anymore, I feel. I feel a certain responsibility to talk about it and mm-hmm. to talk about it in a way like I've always done it. And, and I was sharing with my team at the Orange County Museum of Art now that, you know, I had my kids really young and I, I've really not had a career when I wasn't a mom, you know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. my kids have just yeah. always been a part of my entire career. And Mm -hmm. so I've always approached, you know, what I show and how I think about art. And I think about the audience from a place of wanting to be inclusive and to make people feel comfortable and to make people feel welcome and to be able to have my kids come and see it with their friends and their teachers and, and not be embarrassed or ashamed or scared or not isolate yourself. Yeah, I understand. I totally understand. Yeah. It's more feminist to be with your kids in a museum and you're bringing them to your job. (laughs) Yeah. And for a long time, it's, I mean, for me, it was kind of without thought. And then with some space and distance, I can see it as you're saying, you know, as like Mm -hmm. an act of resistance or, you know, an act of feminism or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I necessarily saw it that way at first. It was just life. Things just are what they are. And throughout my career, I've probably gravitated towards people that I could be authentic with. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. something that I found with you and Arit as well, being at art fairs. And as you said, a variety of different countries, we would run into each other. And, and there was always a conversation too about our families kind of checking in. It's very nice. Tell me the story of meeting your husband. Wow. it was a long time ago so I as I said before I grew up in a small town in the Negev and then I went to the army for two years 
And just before finishing my service, I found an apartment in Tel Aviv because everybody leaves the Negev and everybody wants to be in Tel Aviv. I wanted to yeah. study. I studied afterwards. I studied art history and East Asian studies. So I moved to Tel Aviv and Guy is a native Tel Aviv, Tel Avivian, which is rare, by the way. I don't know how is it in the States. I think New Yorkers... Yeah, in big cities, it's always rare to find someone who was born. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I worked, I was just working in a, in a delivery company. It just did a, a daily job, you know, nothing special. I didn't study it. And I met him. He was on a motorcycle delivering stuff from here to there. And I was in the office and I met him before both of us studied. It was before we were students. So we, we actually had the whole journey together, studying. And then after I finished my bachelor degree, I sent a fax. I remember it was a fax to three art galleries in Tel Aviv. And then I started working at Sommer Gallery. And Guy was still a student, an art student at one of the biggest art schools in Israel. Irit went to see his graduation exhibition, you know, his final show. And she just... Fell in love. I worked at the gallery a year and a half or two years before Guy, before uh, Irit decided to work with Guy. And since then we're together, but we didn't have children 10 years. We chose not to, to have children for 10 years. And then we have two boys today. <laughs> so you referenced um, growing up in the Negev and, and it being a small town with you know, 2,000 families. And then you, you just referenced kind of in passing your service. Will you talk a little bit about that? And I don't know how many of our listeners know about the mandatory military service. And you had a pretty interesting job when you were in the, in the military. So can, you, can, you tell, can you tell about some of that? Yeah. First, it's important to mention that it was in the mid-90s, 94 1994 till 1996, I was serving two years in the army. Israeli women and men have to go to the army. Women go, we go to two years, serve two years, and men, it's not men even, it's uh, youth at the age of 18. Men serve three years. And I went to be, it was a kind of a prestigious job to get in. I was a tech driver. A tank driver. Uh, a tank driver. But, you know, you have the course. You, it's, it's also in the south part of Israel. There's a big base there. And, uh, but again, I, you know, today I'm looking at it and I'm, what, what did they, it's not part of me. You know, it's not a part of me today. I mean, it is, but it's strange. I'm looking at it and it's strange. You know, it's something that I'm not connected to at all. But it was a nice service. I have friends from there. It's, it was really an adventure for me. And your kids, they'll have their service? Um, wow. You think it's about a, that. Um, yes, they have to, you know. It's still part of the Israeli obligations you have to do. I mean, when I grew up, it wasn't a question. It wasn't a question. You went. You didn't think about it. You didn't need to... Yes, no, what will I do? You just went, everybody went. Today also, but it's, yeah, you asked. You, you, you asked me, will they go? It was never a question 20, 30 years ago. 
So tell our listeners about the Israeli art world. Talk a little bit, if you will, about the galleries. I mean, we've been referencing Summer Gallery and and it's for sure one of the you know most well-known galleries from Israel internationally, mm-hmm. first it's, or second, you yeah, know, definitely it, yeah. the very top. And yeah. um, and part of that is the participation right in the international art fairs and being visible in that way. And you know, I've been in Israel a, a fair amount, both personally and then also having traveled an exhibition to the Israel Museum, uh, you know, a long time ago and and having been on on research trips. And I don't know the level of kind of transparency into the Israeli art world there is, you know, in a global way. So I'd, I'd love to have you talk about it. Israel has, it's a small art scene. There are around 12, 15 art space, art galleries in Tel Aviv, contemporary galleries. Yeah, mm-hmm. that are active mm-hmm. and they, they represent artists, even uh, not only uh, artists from today. I mean, young artists, mid-career and older artists. But the interesting thing about the art world in Israel, the art scene, we have a lot, many art schools all over the country. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people want to be an artist. Uh, artist. So the art scene itself is not so big. There is the Israel Museum, the Tel Aviv Museum. There is a very beautiful, I don't know if you've been to the En Harod Museum in the north, in the kibbutz. I have not. Beautiful museum, an amazing museum. They have a great collection of uh, Israeli art. It's a small but very vibrant art scene. And there are a few art spaces that artists founded, you know, that are run by artists. There's a Center for Contemporary Art, which is not a museum, but a a nice space that shows not only Israeli art, but contemporary art. It's small, but very lively. I mean, you have every six to eight weeks, there are um, exhibition art changing and openings, and it's all happening in Tel Aviv. And uh, Summer Gallery gallery was, was and still, I think Irit was a pioneer in terms of bringing contemporary young international artists to Israel. It was very a very local art scene until the beginning of the 90s. You know, Wolfgang Tillmans and Ugo Rondinone were shown here when people were, when it was a very local scene. Yeah, and showing young artists graduating from art schools was also rare in the beginning of the 90s. This is what Sommer Gallery did and grew up with the artists. They, they are, you know, some of them. Today, actually, I'm, there's an opening at the Tel Aviv Museum, a very big group exhibition, a lot of the Israeli art collection. They're pulling out the contemporary art collection of Israeli art, and it's going to be a nice opening, I think. As I said, I've, I've been there a lot, and I think it's an amazing place and I talk all the time about the innovation there and the food and the fashion in addition to the art and I think that sometimes by having maybe less space there's you know more opportunities to kind of bump into people uh, Mm -hmm. not just like physically but intellectually and and that kind of proximity I think is is really amazing for creativity 
I think the point that you made about the number of art schools is really important because it's an indicator of how being creative is seen in the culture. And it's something that's important and relevant and something to aspire to, which isn't the case everywhere. Yeah, we live in a very special place, Heidi. It's true. (laughs) The ground is burning, but it's a place where you have an opportunity to be more creative, I think. It's not more creative, but very creative. Not only in class, in visual art, we have dance companies, which are very successful, you know, Bacheva Group Company, and we have in Balpinto Group Company, and also in music and food, always was good, but now more, more good, <laughs> more better. Yeah, I think that's true. So mm-hmm. tomorrow I, I ask everyone, why does art matter? I don't think you can live without art, really. It's, it's a cliche, but it's, I think it's true. It's culture. It's a must. I don't know. You feel alive when you see art, when you live near and through art more, even more. If you can do it yourself or be part of it, it's great. What Um, didn't I ask you that you wish I did? Something funny. I, I woke up this morning and I told myself that I could be a filmmaker working on biographies because I love people. I love to hear stories about people. And uh, even at the gallery, you know, for years, I love art, of course, but I love people more. People who make art and people who love art. It's interesting. I often say that my favorite thing to do is to look at art with other people. And Mm -hmm. it's because I learn something new each time. And what I learn something about is... The thing we're looking at, of course, but I also learned something about the person that I'm looking with, and I also learned something else about myself. Be sure to tune in next time when my guest is Mike Kaplan. Mike is the CEO of the Aspen Skiing Company. He is also a longtime close personal friend and a collaborator. We did some incredible projects together in Aspen as part of the Art in Unexpected Places partnership, which of course had us commissioned contemporary artists to put their images on lift tickets, but also to do some other stuff that was pretty out of the box, particularly for a for-profit skiing company. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Hallie Zander. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We'll be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you for listening.